Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now on this is Jeff Rosenberg, Portfolio Manager of the systematic multi-strategy fund at BlackRock. Jeff, let's get straight to it, sir. Your response, your reaction. Yeah, I think the the focus here is that the headline, while a miss, uh, is expected to be revised higher. We've had a pattern for for a number of years now with this calendar set up that December gets revised higher. You had the revisions earlier uh, adding to it. So I think the market's looking past the, the disappointment on the headline. And as you guys have highlighted, you know, the unemployment rate, the labor force participation rate and and the average hourly earnings, you know, are all about the look through from the payroll report to the outlook on inflation. And that's really the more important story here for, for payrolls. You know, we saw in the minutes earlier this week the discussion about, you know, reaching maximum employment, full employment and liftoff. I think that has been decided. So the kind of the wage count is pretty clear. And we've had a lot of evidence for a long time now that labor markets are, are, are very strong. I think the issue is, are they too strong and are they a contributor contributor to the inflation story? And I think there's a little bit of that in this report. And I think that's more the takeaway for the market. Can you frame, not the certainness of it, but Jeff Rosenberg, can you begin to frame in your mind that we're heading for an inverted 210 spread? I mean, are we, is this the first discussion with particularly the regular household survey showing 650,000 job growth? Are we finally at a point where we really have to begin to, dis- to discuss potential curve and vision with a two-year yield up, up, up? You know, Tom, it's a it's a very big question. It's a question we, we spent a lot of time talking about. But the difference this time is the role of the balance sheet. And and you know, when you see how much the balance sheet has contributed to financial conditions easing, right? You look at that time series of the balance sheet and it makes what was and you were there with with me, you know, what we thought in in uh, in two thousand and eight was historic unprecedented balance sheet expansion. And what we see in this balance sheet is it makes that period look tiny by comparison. And so I think the difference in the kind of traditional yield curve inversion, the bond market predicting the Fed overdoes it yet again, and you're seeing some of that in the bond market already, is the 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 tool and, and, and the uncertainty around how much will they use the balance sheet to try to take some of that accommodation out. You saw a lot of discussion of that in both speeches and a bit in the minutes about, you know, trying to avoid that that very strong curve inversion and using the balance sheet to try to tighten financial conditions without the same kind of yield curve inversion. So I, th- I think it, it remains to be seen and we still have a lot of information to come from the Fed about the balance sheet normalization policy. Jeff, it's hard to believe that we're just uh, fewer than two weeks into the new year. It has been an exhausting period of time in the first week of 2022. Has anything changed your outlook, given the fact that we've gotten the meeting minutes, given the fact that we seem to see uh, some support for a very tight labor market in today's data, that really you're going to actually adjust, tweak your view for the year ahead? 
Well, I, I think going into this year, we had already had the view that this was a significant set of, of turning points, right? You, 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 we knew that from the meeting. We discussed it uh, when I was on a, a month ago from the, from the dots plot. What we got out of the minutes was the narrative to that change. And that narrative really laid out that the Fed recognizes they have a significant inflation problem on their hands. And and now it's really about the market and the Fed figuring out how much intestinal fortitude does the Fed have to tighten financial conditions? Because tightening financial conditions means tighter financial conditions, i.e. lower stock prices, higher interest rates, wider credit spreads. Uh, and what we've seen is very little tolerance for financial conditions over tightening. And that's the tricky part that the Fed is going to try to have to weave here between wanting to take some of this incredible post-COVID crisis accommodation out of the market, take some of the froth out of asset prices without overdoing it. Uh, we don't have a really good experience for the ability of, of markets to, to kind of calmly go through uh, a tightening cycle. And so I think what we've seen in the first two weeks is a little bit of a validation that this is a very different market backdrop environment than what we've had in the post-COVID environment. Uh, and, and so I think you have to go into portfolio, portfolio risk taking with that understood. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Generous of you to be with us. Jeffrey Rosenberg is with BlackRock. This is a joy. She is out of the combine at Washington University of St. Louis. Think the laureate, Douglas North, among others, Lawrence Meyer as well. Tara Sinclair joins us now from George Washington University, where she is expert in counting the data. Tara, do you have any idea how to count the data amid a pandemic. Is the data that you see it indeed, is the data that we see on Bloomberg's surveillance every day, is it truly believable? Well, I mean, obviously there's a lot of complexity here. And you know, when we're thinking about using data for modeling or for forecasting, we're typically relying on the historical patterns being applicable to today. And so it's really hard to find historical patterns that make sense when we're seeing you know, such novel events happening day to day and where we keep using the word unprecedented over and over and over again. Uh, but it is still the case that so, our statistical agencies you know, for today, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the numbers that they're putting out, they are working very, very hard to put out the cleanest, clearest numbers that they can. And it's still important to look at this information in order to be able to have you know, some insight as to what's going on. Tara, the key question continues to be the participation rate. The fact that the participation rate did not increase, even as we saw the jobless rate fall to the lowest going back to February of 2020, raises some alarm bells. Why is it that people are not going back into the labor market and what could possibly uh, bring them in? What's your experience both on the ground as well as from an academic setting? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we really have to think carefully about what the incentives are for people to participate in the labor force right now. And we still have a pandemic going on. And that is definitely holding back participation, both directly from concerns about the virus, but also from other challenges. You're trying to figure out childcare situation when you don't know when your, your child might test positive for the virus. You have to care for others in your household in other ways. That's also an additional constraint on labor force participation. And we also have to remember, we still have those long demographic trends 
that are drawing down that overall labor force participation. So we may never get back to labor force participation rates we saw pre-pandemic because we've got the retirement of the baby boomers happening at the same time. So this raises an issue of, is this as good as it gets? And are we going to see, for example, wages increase much more than people are expecting because that participation rate may not go up that much higher. As you said, it may not ever get back to where we saw pre-pandemic. What's your view on that? Well, I still see this as a, a temporary maximum employment where we are right now, where we may be close to as far as we can get, but... At the, at the same time, we may still see additional improvement once we get more clarity about the long-term uh, situation with the virus. Tara, thank you so much. Tara Sinclair with George Washington at University Today on some of the data nuances of this. <laughs> Tiffany Wilde is expert at Time Began. She joins us now from PIMCO. What a shock to get the Rick Adana note, Tiffany, that before holiday, before seasonal, before this, before that, this was a very strong report. How strong was it? Yeah, well, good morning, Tom and Paul. Um, you know, so although the headline number was a bit disappointing, um, you know, I just keep in mind that there are two surveys underlying um, any payroll report. And, and the household survey, which isn't given as a headline number, um, you know, it was actually quite strong. You know, and I, I think that really is what the FOMC, for example, is going to be focusing on. So they're going to be looking at um, the six, approximately 650 job gains, um, which pushed the unemployment rate uh, down to 3.9% below their estimates for kind of that long-run level, uh, a proxy for maximum employment. So, you know, by, by this measure, we're sort of at maximum employment. Of course, inflation has, you know, um, you know met their uh, standard for hiking interest rates. You know, so I, to me, this report just solidifies after the minutes um, earlier this week, which, which I would argue that showed the Fed very focused on upside risk to inflation um, and, and in a labor market that's rapidly recovering, this just solidifies. The, the March rate hike that the market was already pricing in. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Tiffany. I mean, you know, how do you think the, the Fed will interpret the data here today? Because even though the headline, a little bit disappointing relative to consensus, a lot of positives underneath. Yeah, I mean, so so I think yeah, you you know again you always have to be really careful because um, uh, you know there there can be statistical noise around any report and I think the establishment survey um, had a little bit of that going on. So what what we kind of thought also that was going to happen was that you had um, establishments businesses right that kind of pulled forward hiring, um, and I think that happened across the gamut. And then what we saw was a, a pretty big surge in hiring in October, and that's been followed by um, you know a weaker kind of weaker prints if you will, although. 200,000 um, right. jobs is, is still pretty strong, but weaker than that, Prince, um, in the months to follow. Now, I think that will kind of wash out of the data um, in January, um, but we'll, of course, we'll have to see what happened with Omicron. I think the more important thing here, though, is the household survey, you know, it was very strong, and, and it, it, it's been lagging over the last year, but it's recently caught up, and I think that reflects the fact that we've seen actually a lot of uh, establishments of, of proprietors, um, you know, people that, you know, aren't working in the more traditional, um, you know, kind of corporate establishment jobs. And the household survey picks that up, um, whereas the establishment survey doesn't. You know, so I, I think that the household survey being very strong is something that the FOMC is, is really going to focus yeah. on here, especially in the unemployment rate. 
why don't we focus on that? What is the history where media is fixated by non-farm payrolls, traditionally 200,000? OMG, we're going to go to 150 as a run rate. We all got that wrong. <clears throat> and then, you know, we focus on that. Why don't we focus on the other survey? David Malpass, when he was at Bear Stearns, focused on that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think traditionally, you know, well, obviously, most of the the higher percentage of jobs in general in the United States are, are through large corporates and and, and larger establishments. Um, and so that survey, you know, I think is a very good proxy. Um, and in addition, the household survey can be noisy, it can su- suffer from, you know, kind of more statistical noise from month to month. But the, the pandemic, it does seem has changed a lot of how people are, are working, um, or not or not working, quite frankly. And one of the things I think that has changed since about the me? pandemic is people, people <laughs> prefer to have sole proprietorships. Right. So, so Tiffany, as I look at the average hourly earnings year-on-year growth of 4.7%, is that wage inflation? Is wage inflation something that investors, maybe the Federal Reserve, needs to think about? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I, I, they cannot, I think they can't ignore the um, the wage inflation statistics that are that are coming out of, of this survey. Um, and, and although, you know, it's well known that it, um, you know, there are some compositional effects that, that have, you know, that, that sort of distort, can distort these numbers. You know, it, I think the, the bottom line is, is that wage inflation, um, you know, it's clearly strong for low wage jobs. Um, and, and I think it's potentially broadening out. And that's really what the Fed uh, cares about. Um, you know, and, and in terms of, of looking at longer term inflation expectations and how they're filtering into the way people bargain for jobs, um, it's really, they're, they're really concerned with, you know, are, is wage inflation really broadening out across sectors and, and are businesses passing on, you know, further passing that on to consumers? You know, well, and, and I the... think it, there, is some, there is some evidence, right, that we're getting some broadening out there. That's right, where I wanted to go. You're, you're thinking like I am. Tiffany, what is the evidence right now that we're actually seeing wage inflation besides big press headlines from people like Amazon and warehouse workers and that? Is it really out there? Well, yeah. I mean, so the, I think the Atlanta Fed measure is um, is is really helpful in that regard. And and again, it shows that um, you know it's lower lower wage, lower skilled service jobs that are really seeing the brunt of the wage inflation. Um, but I think that a lot of other jobs um, they get contract uh, contract renegotiations happen at the end of the year. Um, and of course, the December report maybe doesn't pick this up, but in January it's going to be very important to see are people uh, you know in, in broader sectors of the economy are they actually getting cost of living adjustments? Um, and is that broadening out? And, and can people sort of bargain for that? So, you know, again, I think there's some small indications that that's starting to happen um, now. Um, and of course, this, is, this will be something that we'll be very focused on um, in the beginning of the year, getting indications of that. All right. So, Tiffany, given the um, labor data that we got today, what is the PIMCO 2022 GDP outlook? And, and kind of what are the levers there that could move it one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, so so overall, I mean, our forecast, like many other forecasters, are, uh, you know, we're looking for kind of a Goldilocks environment, if you will, of of, of still strong uh, GDP growth, but but something that's moderating, you know, because the fiscal stimulus that we've gotten over the last couple of years, of course, is is, is also moderating. Um, but in in the midst of that, we're also, like many forecasters, looking for inflation to to also moderate uh, back, you know, more towards levels consistent with with um, and central bank targets. 
Now, you know, I, again, I call that a Goldilocks environment. Um, and I think that's there's reasons to believe that's still the base case, but there's a lot of risks <laughs> underlying that. And I think those risks have increased lately. You know, one of them obviously is the, um, you know, just inflation remains persistently elevated. Um, I think another risk, though, maybe underappreciated by markets, I'm not sure, is that you could actually get a more abrupt tightening of financial conditions um, related to that as well, right? I mean, because I think the Fed, you know, so far has been very, um, you know, they've been very successful in moving market expectations for earlier timing of rate hikes, but miraculously broader financial conditions across, you know, equities, currencies, et cetera, haven't really tightened. Mm. You know, so I think that raises the risk that you get a more, um, you know, a faster, <laughs> more, uh, you know, more volatile adjustment. Um, you know, and of course, I think that's what something the Fed does want to avoid. You know, and then I think the third risk, obviously, is just is just the virus itself. Um, you know, it seems like the Fed was pretty unconcerned about the economic effects of Omicron, more concerned about the inflationary effects. Um, but I think it just it goes to highlight just the uncertainty in general of, of the virus and and what it could bring in the in the new year. Tiffany, thank you so much. Tiffany Wild with us with PIMCO. Some really good insight yep. there. Andrew Pekosh is on Eastern Standard Time at the Johns Hopkins University and gives us an Omicron brief today. Into the weekend, Andrew, even a dummy like me has figured out Omicron is not Delta, but it's something, well, there's some mystery to it. What's the biggest mystery with Omicron into this weekend? I think really it, it circles around the issue of why this virus seems to be so much more transmissible. Certainly, you know, it has mutations that can invade some of the immune responses that vaccines give you, but it really does seem like this virus is spreading better than other variants for other reasons. And right now we don't really understand what that is, but certainly it seems like people are getting infected in, in conditions that previously were highly unlikely uh, to mediate infection, and that's fueling this massive surge of cases. Uh, transmission is something that's really difficult to study in a laboratory, but it really is one of the things that Omicron is doing fantastically better than any previous variant we've seen. Is there a rho or a zeta after Omicron? I mean, I, I frankly like the geography designations that we used to do in the old days, but do you just assume there's another variant after this one? Uh, there absolutely will be. Um, this virus has already shown the ability to evolve, change, and respond to uh, its new host humans. And it's now showing the ability to try to evade some of the immune responses that are coming down the line. I, I do firmly feel we're on a path to make this disease caused by this virus much more mild, much more contained, because we will have population immunity. We will have vaccines that are effectively knocking down severe disease. And we'll eventually have antivirals that are distributed to help limit that. So there are ways that we can control this disease. But this virus will be around for a long time. And it's looking more and more like we're going to have to deal with this like we deal with seasonal influenza. Andy, when do we get to that point where we have enough, whether it's herd immunity or just immunity in the general population, with also the remedies, the antivirals and the vaccines, where we can basically go back to life as it is, basically treat this like the common cold or the flu? 
Well, I really do feel like this surge of Omicron cases is really going to be the tipping point because with the massive number of cases, and let's be clear, some of the official counts are probably underestimates of the true number of cases that are out there right now because of a number of reasons. But this surge of Omicron cases may be what really pushes us over that border to enough immunity in the population so that transmission is limited and therefore, you know, the likelihood of getting infected will be a little bit lower going forward from here. How do people avoid getting sick? Well, it really comes down to the basic principles we've been talking about, perhaps boost it up a little bit. Uh, I'm a big believer now that people should be really thinking about wearing KN95 masks um, or double masking with a surgical mask and a facial covering on top of that. I think that this increased transmission of Omicron requires people to take an even greater um, uh, effort to try to limit their exposures. And again, masking is one thing. The other social distancing issues that we've talked about um, are important to continue to do. Uh, do as much work as you can remotely, uh, but when you're going into situations where you're going to be exposed to people, realize that you need to up your game in terms of the things you do to protect yourself and be wary of, uh, uh, of getting infected. Andy Perkosh there. Andy, thank you, sir. As always, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health on year three, Tom, entering year three of all of this. And it feels like a lifetime for so many people. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.